Good morning. I'm open, if you would, to Daniel 3, Daniel chapter 3. We'll look at the entire chapter this morning, but I'll read the first, first, the first seven verses to get us going. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love and your grace, your mercy, the gift of your Holy Spirit, which you have enabled us to see the glories of the gospel. Help us this morning to understand the one in whom our, our focus ought to be on, the substance of our faith for your glory through this account. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Daniel 3. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace, a blazing fire. Therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Uh, Daniel 3 records one of the best, well, one of the most well-known stories in all the Bible, Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace, um, an an outstanding example of obedience to the first and second commandments. You know, you shall have no other God before me. You shall not bow down or worship any other God. You shall not make any graven image of anything in heaven above, earth below, and sea beneath the earth, and so on. Um, It's so outstanding, this account, that... They're highlighted in the book of Hebrews. Um, Hebrews celebrates um, the acts and the deeds of men and women of faith in the living God. Um, Though it does not mention them by name, we read in, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35, of those who by faith quenched the power of fire. And once again, um, the lives of Daniel's friends are in danger. This time, um, Daniel will not rescue them um, via 
um, the, the work and power of God, um, but Yahweh himself directly um, steps in and delivers these men. And this is just uh, the next account of the ongoing battle between the idols of Babylon and Almighty God himself. Last time we saw God's sovereignty displayed in the plans that he revealed um, through the dream um, given to Nebuchadnezzar, his plan for the establishment of his kingdom, that is the messianic kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. After Daniel interpreted that frightening dream, remember it just it tormented him continually. And after the Lord revealed it through Daniel, um, Nebuchadnezzar was greatly relieved in fact, the king was so thankful that he acknowledged Daniel's God as the God of gods and Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries. He even made good on his promise, didn't he? To reward the one who could not only interpret the dream, but tell him what the dream was. Look back at verse 48, chapter 2. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel remained there in service to the royal court until his death in 538 B.C., well into his 80s. So verse 49, notice, he also appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon. Now, although Nebuchadnezzar offered high praise to Yahweh because he revealed the the meaning of the dream to Daniel, it will become clear that the king never gave up his pagan ways. This whole episode begins with Nebuchadnezzar's construction of, of, a, of a gold image, a gold statue, probably gold-plated. It's doubtful that it was solid gold, probably gold-plated. This image measuring in modern equivalents of 90 feet tall by 9 feet wide. Probably, on a, probably on, on a great, standing on top of a base, perhaps upward of you know, 25 feet tall. No one knows for certain. Uh, we don't know for certain whether the image was that of the king of himself or was the image of Babylonian gods or perhaps both. Whatever the case, um, both were considered to be in the sphere um, of divinity. Now, ironically, the, the gold statue, if you think about this, was possibly inspired by the vision, the dream, that, that God gave to Daniel. This giant, terrifying image, this colossal figure of, of a man, the head of gold, which, remember, Daniel identified as Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom, So there's a a very real possibility here that the king ordered this statue to be built as a result of the dream, and the date of completion obviously would have been 
probably a, a couple of years later, if not more. I mean, you, this wasn't forged overnight. Remember, Daniel bravely looked into the face of Nebuchadnezzar. He looked him in the eye and he said, Oh, you king are the head of gold, chapter 2, verse 38. After you pass away, another kingdom will come behind you. So king, you will pass, your kingdom will pass, after which another kingdom will come, it will rise, it will fall, after that another kingdom will come, and it will fall. And then God's kingdom is going to be established forever. Now remember the diminishing value of the image? Head of gold, breast of silver, down to bronze, down to iron, down to clay, there's also a diminishing in its weight, gold, silver, bronze, iron, clay. And this is a picture that, that all these kingdoms that will come, although they, they, they decrease in splendor, over time they grow in strength, in might. But ultimately, they're all blown away like chaff, so that not a trace of them could be found. Chapter 2, verse 35, when a stone cut out of a mountain without hands comes hurling through the air, it hits the feet of the image, and the whole thing comes a-tumbling down. And then that stone grows into a huge mountain that fills the earth, the kingdom of God that shall never be destroyed. Chapter 2, verse 44. So here then, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's statue is made in, entirely of gold um, in, in, in an apparent attempt to counteract the dream. Folly on display. I mean, this is nothing less than an attempt to, to, to resist and thwart the sovereign decreed will of God. In Daniel chapter 2, 3, and 4 provide evidence that that is precisely what Nebuchadnezzar attempts to do. So this head of gold in the dream chapter 2 has become this, this gigantic statue in chapter 3, 90 feet tall, covered in gold on the plain of Dura, um, a significant site. Because if you remember, this Babylonian plain was the location um, of the Tower of Babel. In Genesis chapter 11, which had a twofold function, Tower of Babel. Number one was a defiant attempt to make a name for the people who built it, that their glory, the legacy of their glory, would stand forever in their foolish minds. And number two was the attempt um, of the people um, from, from being scattered as God had decreed, as God had declared. They refuse to scatter, so God falls in a way that confuses their languages and they're not able to communicate. So Nebuchadnezzar, this statue, basically has those same two goals in mind. It was designed to establish um, a lasting testimony to his glory, number one. And then secondly, to provide a, a kind of uniform focus on his kingdom. Verse one, he set it up on the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. This is megalomania 
on steroids. You couldn't imagine a vainer thing for a person to do. And you know what's interesting? Politicians to this day attempt to do the same thing in a different way. Yeah? Verse 2, all of Nebuchadnezzar's subjects, notice, throughout the empire, including government officials, are summoned to attend the dedication of the statue. And this whole dedication ceremony apparently um, had a very powerful psychological effect. So you build this image and, and, and you call everyone in and then you play music. Music is powerful. I'm a music lover. I, I love even the stories of fallen men, good songwriters, who look at the world and try to describe the world from their fallen perspective. So long as it doesn't straight up and straight out blaspheme God, to me it could be a great song. And it has a psychological effect, it, does it not? If you lend yourself to it emotionally, you can be swept away into, I mean, you name it. So here... It's interesting that with, with musical accompaniment, all the worshipers are to fall down, verses 4 and 5. Verse 6, but whoever does not fall down in worship shall immediately be cast in into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. This was, by the way, one of the favorite ways of, of Babylonians and Persians um, in, in punishing convicted criminals throw them into the fire. So here then, not only was this statue um, impressive, accompanied here by music, there was a furnace of smoke. There's a furnace with smoke coming out the top in view. You refuse to bow here, you'll bow in there. Imagine. Verse 7, everybody obeyed saying, basically, you are supreme. There's no higher law than you, Nebuchadnezzar. Even foreigners, notice, they fall down. They worship the golden image. Almost everyone bows. Not Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego. We, we don't know where Daniel is. He's not mentioned in the account. He could be on a, an assignment somewhere, don't know. <clears throat> then comes this accusation, probably of, um, from some very um, envious Chaldeans. Verse 8, for this reason, that time, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They accuse them. They bring charges. And, and the word accused carries, carries with it the idea of, of, of biting. It's malicious intent here. An opportunity to get rid of these Jews who've been given positions of great authority in our kingdom. Verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not, they do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. They have not regarded you, king. They have disregarded the fact that, that your word is law. 
So to bow to the statue was to bow to the king. You bow and you acknowledge the gods of Babylon. He's outraged. Furious that anyone would question his word or his authority. Verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar in rage and anger gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego Then these men were brought before the king. So here they are summoned to appear before this mighty monarch and their loyalty to the king now is put to the test. Is it true? Is it true that you do not serve my gods? That you refuse to worship the image that I have erected? And then in verse 15, attempting to persuade these devout men, that they should worship the image, he says, really, look, I'm going to play the music again. Thinking perhaps it will have the same psychological effect it had on everyone else, impressing them by the beauty of, of the music, manipulating them into worshiping this false god. You know, that's what's wrong with our, in our day, in places called church, that, 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 who assume that the important thing about worship is its aesthetic effect. Whip them up. Work them over emotionally, psychologically, and then we'll trick them with the gospel. <laughs> worship the image and all will be well, he says. So he offers them another chance. To, to recognize his sovereignty, to pay homage to the king, ultimately. Verse 15b, but if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there? Now get, catch this, don't miss this. What God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? He is taunting them. What an arrogant statement. No God can contradict my word or my works. Basically what he says. Who shall deliver you out of my power? And then verses 16 to 18, you know, they say, look, we have no need to answer you. And they're not being arrogant, by the way. They simply refuse to make apology for their faith and their honor to the one true God. And they said, you know, if, if he chooses not to deliver us, that, that, that doesn't mean, uh, if is not a word of, of faithlessness. It's recognition with regard to God's sovereignty. Beautiful. He's easily able. If he wants to deliver us from the flames, he will. But in no way is he obligated to glorify himself by delivering us. If he wants, he'll glorify himself by way of our death. The death of these three. If. You know, it's easy for us to talk about this account. I don't know how many times I heard this growing up, you know. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, great story. It's easy for us to, to cheer them on, to look at this account, and to agree that we would do the same. 
But think about it. If we were in their position, standing before all the wealth, all the power, all the pageantry of Babylon, you talk about pressure. We think we, we're so pressured today. Stand here, you know, watching all of these other dignitaries, rulers, leaders, powerful people who've been called in by this king. This is a conquering king. And he demands that these nations, these dignitaries, these leaders bow down. And then you're looking at the king who, who, who has the power of life and death in his hand. In terms of physical life and death, of course. And here he is standing, burning with anger, outraged, pointing to the furnace, bow now or bow in there. That would be, that would be incredibly difficult, but by the grace of God. Amen? So th- this is pressure to conform. And if he providentially has decreed to put us in places like this, sufficient grace will not be provided until it is needed. Amen. It's kind of like manna. You can't store up grace for the future. Provided at the moment of need. I was thinking about golden images today through my readings this week. You know, we, we don't bow before physical statues today, but um, certainly we're tempted by, by various pleasures, desires, attitudes, you know, attitudes and desires that society tells us that I need to have if I'm going to be fulfilled here. These are desires and these are attitudes I must have if, if, if I want to lead a worthwhile life, a hassle-free life. They promise to bless me if I bow down before them and to curse me and ruin me if I refuse. Right? For some, that golden image is the respect and admiration of others. It's the pressure to be, on the, to be, to, to be in the in crowd. This idolatry was described by C.S. Lewis, cited by Ian DeGood, as the allure of the inner ring. He said this, quote, the desire, this is the desire to be on the right side of, his, of an invisible line that divides insiders from outsiders. Indeed, the power of this idol is such that, in the opinion of Lewis, Of all the passions, the passion for the inner ring is the most skillful in making a man who is not yet a very bad man do very bad things, end of quote. Or I will add to that, to make him or her believe very wrong things. Professing Christians today have adopted unbiblical liberal views of life and culture, pressured as they are 
to do so, to adopt these values. They're bowing in the wrong direction, and they're idolaters. If that's you, repent. Buying into the homosexual agenda, same-sex marriage, sexual orientation, identification, waving a hand of blessing, accepting it, celebrating with everyone because of pressure, repent. Whenever kingdoms forbid what God demands or command what God forbids, the course is clear, God must be obeyed. In the book of Acts, what they say, do not preach in the name of this Jesus. The apostles' response, we must obey God rather than man. The principle holds true to this day. Jesus said during his earthly ministry, render to Caesar that which is legitimately his. Anything beyond that, if he seeks to claim worship for himself, that's where you stand. That's where you resist. So what suffices here for these young men is not wisdom and prudence as we've seen thus far. They set apart themselves. Remember, they refused to eat of the king's food and drink of the king's wine and so on. They used wisdom and prudence and they were able to eat only vegetables. It was, it was agreed that they could do so. It's not a dream given and interpreted by Daniel to the king, you know, so that, that he relents. What this is on display here is bold courage. In what? Courage in divine sovereignty. Courage in divine sovereignty. So divine sovereignty, we see, provides for us comfort, strength, and courage. Comfort in the, in the assurance that it gives. You know, God works all things together for the, the good, those who love God, called according to his purposes. And along with courage here in the face of, of great opposition. And there's no greater illustration of this than in this account, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. who did not, notice, base their obedience on what they would get out of it. So the, the, their refusal here was not based on sure knowledge that they would not be burned to ash. They didn't know what was going to happen. No idea. They did not honor the Lord because of what he would do for them but because he alone is God. He's almighty God. Because their eyes here under pressure are fixed on something, and it's not the king. It's not the king's decree. It's not pressure from society. Their gaze is fixed opposite of where everyone else is looking. 
their eyes are fixed on someone else. Not who or what the world sees, and in here it's the king, but what is unseen. So more than being about these men, who by the way have been renamed, representing the gods of Babylon, but their hearts haven't changed. Their focus hasn't changed. So th this is more about a furnace. This is more, this account is more than their faith. This account is about the, what? Substance of their faith. Almighty God. Faith and trust in Almighty God to stand up under this trial. Faith under fire. So here they are looking to God who is present with his people, number one. He's present with his people. He is powerful for his people, number two. Who has a plan for his people. They understand, they're aware of the covenant promises of God. They knew the word of God. They're standing on Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. You shall have no other gods before me. You should not make unto thee any graven image of anything in heaven above earth, below or sea, beneath the earth. The first two commandments, they stand on the truth of God. For the glory of God. They're first and foremost conscious of God's presence by way of his word. This is important for us to understand, right? They knew God was present by way of his, his everlasting word, his word which stands forever. So the word was in their hearts to guide them when they fell under pressure or they stood under pressure from the culture. The word was written in their heart. The Bible needs to be in our heart and our minds, amen? And that's why you're here. So you should feel encouraged this morning. You're here being equipped as you want to be here. You could have slept in. You could be at Starbucks waiting for the 10 o'clock service. But you're here. It's a shout out for Sunday school attendees. <laughs> Verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath and his facial expression was altered. Toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. Outraged, and perhaps at this point, he's recalling the greatness of the God of Daniel and his three friends who revealed the dream and its meaning some time ago. I'll make sure there is nothing he can do here. So heat it up seven times. In verses 20 to 23, we see that it was so hot that, 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 that the many strong and mighty men, servants of the king, were consumed by its intense heat. 
And then the, the narrative of this trial and, and execution, their sentence and, and execution, notice, is abruptly interrupted verse 24. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar is startled by something he, he sees in the furnace. Verse 24. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men loosed, walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God. Come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the kings, high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of the head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. <laughs> Here the power of God is present among his people who has a plan for his people. So having no biblical category here to, to help him understand what's going on, that is what, what he's seeing inside the fire, the king falls back upon his default religious setting, Babylonian paganism, and he says, it's a son of the gods. He does not see what he had expected. They aren't turned to ash. They're walking around in the fire. So th this was either um, an angel or the angel of God, pre-incarnate visitation of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver these men, not from the trial, but to be with them amidst the trial, during the trial in the trial, in the fire. This scene echoes forward 600 years to the coming, rising, and ascending of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Revelation, I, you know what? I, I don't have any PowerPoint this morning, so just listen to this, or you can open to Revelation chapter 7 beginning in verse 13. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple and he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer nor thirst anymore. 
nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd, will guide them to springs of water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You know, there are times in the mysterious providence of God when he, he rescues us from temporal danger, serious illness. You ever seen someone delivered from stage four cancer? Healed? I have. Miraculously. Sometimes he does that. There are other times he rescues his people through allowing us to die. Everyone I've ever healed for to be, everyone I've ever prayed for to be healed has been healed. Meaning, if he didn't heal them here, he healed them there. He always rescues those who are his. Our robes will be washed and will be purified by the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're even reminded that that scorching heat here in Revelation, symbolic of eternal punishment, the judgment of God, in no way, you, you cannot be harmed in the presence of God. And here he was, 600 years before the Revelation, in the midst of the fire with these three young men. So the lesson from Daniel 3 For believers, it's crystal clear, beloved. God is always with us in the midst of trials. Always. He may not deliver us from the fire, but the fourth man is always there with us. Verses 28 to 30. (laughs) This is interesting. Back to Daniel. 28. Chapter 3, verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielding up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb (laughs) and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap. (laughs) What a change of affection. (laughs) Inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way, then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. Now, although the king is yet again forced to acknowledge the supremacy of Yahweh, Almighty God, over all things, this is not a confession of saving faith, as some have concluded. This is not. This is just a poor attempt to compensate for his own wickedness. We'll see more about him next week and what God does to him. He attempts to kill these three men and put anyone to death who does not worship this idol 
And notice the compensation. I'm going to advance you in the kingdom and give you religious freedom. That's what he does. That is, for for my evil, idolatrous deed, I'm going to do a couple of good deeds to compensate for my bad deeds. Classic pagan thinking. Works righteousness. You know, that reasons, yes, I did this bad thing, so I'll do a couple good things, and I'll make up for it. So here, religious freedom for you all, and I'll promote you. How about that? Listen to what Sinclair Ferguson says. Quote, Nothing is more common and foolish in the unregenerate heart than to assume that God is satisfied with a life in which we compensate for our sins by deeds that we wrongly assume cancel out our sins. End quote. Bottom line, only the work of Christ can cancel out your sins. No deed that you can do can cancel your sins. I talked to someone the other day. who They're under that impression. I mean, you are a fool. And but by the grace of God, you'll never see. There's no trade-off. Only the deeds of Christ can suffice to cancel out our sins. But anyway, this is where Nebuchadnezzar is at this point in his life spiritually, I believe he comes to saving faith, which we'll see next time. But God's not done with him yet, right? He, he, he raises up this monarch, Nebuchadnezzar. He's a conquering king, and under the sovereign framework of God, if you recall back in chapter 1, it was uh, in, in the year of, of the reign of Jehoiakim that God delivered Judah into the hands of the king. And through all this, he does a work, not only with his own covenant people, who he sends off into exile, he goes to work in his sovereign decreed will of the past to work it out providentially in the life and heart of this man, this king. Next time, God causes him to go insane for a season. We'll see that next time. Amen? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for saving these three on this day, many, many years ago, physically delivering them, supernaturally delivering them to testify of your greatness, of your power, and the purposes that you had for your people throughout time leading to your son, who's at your right hand forevermore. Praise you and thank you for Christ's sake. Amen.